Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Join Gabriel and his food hero guests every Wednesday on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so excited to have Alexa Arnold of The Best Bite of the Plum joining me on the show today. Her blog, The Best Bite of the Plum, is where she celebrates the experience of eating, preparing, and sharing sustainable, seasonal meals. Alexa is driven by her passion for food and the people who produce it, and can usually be found promoting healthy school food and farm-to-school efforts around the country, and browsing cookbooks and farmer's markets for inspiration. Alexa, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Gabriel. Awesome. Well, When I was getting ready for our chat, I looked on your LinkedIn profile and saw that you have worked with a number of food and farming organizations. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about where your passion for local farmers and real whole ingredients comes from? Yeah, totally. You know, I think the whole story with my blog is that it's really about capturing my personal journey with food and the things that kind of inspire me. And, you know, as, as you think about like what you share on the internet and how people perceive you, I started to have this fear that like people think my journey started with pretty pictures of soup on a marble table. <laughs> and it totally didn't. I actually, you know, I had a really poor relationship with food when I was in high school and college and really struggled with an eating disorder. And I was in a really low place. I was, you know, depriving myself of food for the sense of just like creating some control in my life. And then in college, I happened to take this random geography class. And my friend was like, oh, go take this class. It's an easy elective. And I was like, okay, great. And then they started talking about global food systems issues, you know, issues with factory farming and farm workers' rights. And just, you know, the big business control over what we eat and how our food is marketed to us. And it kind of really sparked something in me and made me realize that our country has a national eating disorder. And if I am a person who wants to be a part of changing that, I also had to change my personal experience and my personal relationship with food. So that's kind of how it started. And in the process of, you know, changing my personal behaviors and letting go of some of my poor behaviors, I also was starting new ones like shopping at a farmer's market and eating with the seasons and just learning to get excited about spending the weekend cooking in the kitchen. So it's kind of how all of that started and then led to me managing one of Kentucky's largest farmer's markets. And I did that for a couple of years And then I started working in food policy for a bit in Kentucky. And then I'm now in New York and work for a national farm to school program, which just ensures that kids have an opportunity to know what healthy food is and and eat it every day. So yeah, that's kind of how it all started. And I think that's ultimately really what I want to do with my blog. I've only been blogging for a year. And in the first year, I think it was like a process of finding my personal voice. And then this next year, you know, I've just been thinking so much about how I want to be so much more transparent and honest about that experience. Because I think eating disorders are a a thing that's maybe left out of the larger conversation about the good food movement. So I think, you know, my goal is to kind of provide a voice for that. Cool. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think what you're doing with schools is really interesting. So we'll get back to your blog in a little bit. But I I really want to talk about sort of, you know, some of your experiences with, you know, you work for a nonprofit right now called Food Corps, right? Yeah, uh-huh, Food Corps. Yeah, can you tell us more about this organization? So Food Corps is a national AmeriCorps organization. So we're at the AmeriCorps model. 
And we have service members, so young leaders who are excited about changing the food system can apply to become a Food Corps member. And then they teach and work in schools. They serve in schools across the country in partnership with communities and with educators and sort of implement this three ingredient recipe for healthy kids, which is knowledge that's, you know, education in the classroom and in the garden and, you know, education about nutrition and then engagement, which is those hands-on lessons where kids get to touch and feel food and touch and feel plants and then access. So that's getting more local healthy foods in schools and in the cafeteria and on the lunch line. Right. I think it's really cool that there's organizations like these that are sort of awesome. getting to kids earlier on. Whereas, you know, back in the day when I was in elementary school and in high school, it was a lot of, you know, um, fizzy drinks getting into schools and totally. and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a nice shift, right? Right. It is. I'm really fortunate. And my mom packed my lunch most days going to school, but there are a lot of kids who didn't have that opportunity. So I think what Food Corps is trying to do is, is ensure that, you know, kids eat sometimes most of their daily calories in schools. So ensuring that the food is is healthy and nourishing. Right. Now, what seems to be the biggest hurdle to getting healthier foods into schools? That's a good question. You know, I think it's a number of things. I think, you know, something our service members experience is if they're a person who just starts their service in a school, there are a lot of relationships to build and there are a lot of barriers. I think the strategy we see happening most is building relationships with the principal and getting them on board to be a champion and building strong relationships with the food service director. It might be something as simple as, you know, a food service director has a bunch of oranges that they set on a lunch tray as a whole orange, but a service member might help them slice the orange so that kids are more likely to actually eat that food. Right. Yeah. So there are a lot of barriers, but I think it's sort of identifying the small things that can make a difference and then build that relationship. So they might have more potential to, after that, be like, Hey, I have a relationship with this farmer in the community and he'd like to, you know, donate some of his apples to the school or have the school purchase some of those apples rather. And they might have a better chance of making that happen if they have strong relationships. Right. For sure. And, you know, since your time working with Food Corp. Yeah. Have you been encouraged by the progress? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah. Totally encouraged and inspired. Awesome. (laughs) Our service members, those young people who are on the ground in communities doing the actual work, like that is my inspiration completely. From your time spent working with farmers, you mentioned that you, you spent some time working with farmers market when you were in Kentucky. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the challenges farmers face or maybe some current agricultural issues that maybe someone living in a city might not be aware of? You know, I'll talk a little bit more about my experience in Kentucky, which was I lived in the city Lexington. So that is one of the bigger cities in the state of Kentucky. And I think, you know, a challenge for some of the farmers in that who were working and, and coming to that market was that they'd have to drive like you know, three hours and, you know, we'd kick off our market, we'd start at 7am and to get there and set up, it's just like a really, really long day. And the reason they would drive so far is because this is where the big market of people are, the community of people. So I think, you know, from there, I started working with a lot of rural markets a couple of years after managing that market. And I think, you know, establishing a loyal customer base who comes back even on the rainy days, even on the really cold days when the farmers are still there, they still have something to sell. You know, that's definitely a challenge. Yeah. Now, do you feel like there's been a shift since you've started working or maybe even while you were working with the farmers of greater awareness and, you know, eating more local and and bloggers like yourself who are really promoting seasonal eating? Yeah, I mean, completely. I think so many people now understand the benefits of eating local and like, you know, shortening 
the transportation between the food to their plate, keeping money in the local economy, eating food when it's at peak season. I think a lot of people are totally on board with that. And I think, I mean, in New York, like shopping in a farmer's market is completely accessible. Like there, it's so easy to get to a market. I have like three in my neighborhood. It's awesome. Wow. And I think there are affordable ways to shop at a farmer's market as well. Yeah. So I think definitely, and I think there are so many other bloggers who are telling the same story around, you know, eating seasonal produce that's purchased locally. So yeah. Yeah. And I think also that the blogging community, because it's very seasonally driven and also the chef community, which is very seasonally driven now, especially, do you think that this has benefited farmers, you know, with this shift? Yeah, definitely. I think the chef community for sure, because it provides another outlet for farmers to sell their produce. And I think, you know, sort of back to the farm to school movement, like that is another place that's a reliable market that farmers can sell at. A farmer's market is wonderful and in, in, in big cities where there's a ton of people every weekend, no matter what, or every weekday, no matter what, I think it can be a reliable market. But I think sometimes the problem is that those markets, they don't know, the farmer doesn't know what they're going to get make at the end of every day. They can probably have an estimate, but the weather changes things different meaning like changes how their produce will grow and what kind of crop yields they'll have, but then also changes the outcome of the people coming to the market. So I think, yeah, with chefs getting on board, with institutions getting on board, with other businesses starting to think about how they can incorporate locally sourced food, I think that is totally probably an exciting thing for a lot of farmers. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that you didn't always have you know a, a super healthy relationship with food. Yeah. Where did your curiosity around food sort of come from and blossom actually? Well, I, see, I think one thing is that my mom is a nutritionist and my dad is a vegetarian. So I grew up with the opportunity to know what healthy food is and to eat pretty healthy food. We had a garden in our backyard. We grew strawberries in this little patch in our, you know, in the front yard. So I always, I always knew about food and food was always a conversation I had as a child. But then, you know, sort of going back to the experience I had in college and in a class and learning about like true global issues around food systems. And truthfully, <laughs> reading my first Wendell Berry book, you know, that was like a huge spark for me to realize that food has cultural and historical and agricultural context and that it's so much more than just like what shows up on my plate and so much more than a number of calories that I am allowing myself to eat. So I think there's a shift in like, I've actually been thinking a lot about like, now I don't count calories, but I count chemicals and I want to eat whole food that is with as few chemicals as possible. Right. Well, this class that kind of shifted your entire perspective, did it also sort of naturally, this interest naturally spill over into cooking for yourself and, and cooking? Yeah, totally. I like did not know how to cook for myself before that. I was like, you know, ramen noodle college kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, totally. I think it was like, I'd start shopping in a farmer's market and actually have this hilarious memory of buying radishes. And I, I had never had radishes before. And so I bought them from this farmer. I was like really scared to ask her what to do with them. So I just bought them and didn't say anything. And I brought them home and I roasted them. And like, now I know like roasted radishes can be really good, but like the way I roasted them was not good. <laughs> right. And I came back the next week and I was like, I roasted these and they weren't good. And she like keeled over laughing because radishes are really good when you eat them raw. Right. <laughs> and that's how I was supposed to eat them. But yeah, so I think it totally like sparked an interest in cooking with whole food and experimenting with things I, that I didn't know what they were. You know, I didn't know what kohlrabi was or any of that stuff. And it made cooking really fun because it can be this experimental sort of artistic way to express yourself. Yeah. So I, I started ending up like spending afternoons cooking for friends or just like 
hanging out in the kitchen, making pasta from scratch for the first time and being like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. This is so easy. (laughs) Or this is how it can be made. Was this really how you learned how to cook was basically just through experimentation and just uh, trying different things? Absolutely. I mean, I often say that farmers taught me how to cook because, you know, A, when I was just shopping in a market and then B, when I was actually managing a market, you know, I was given a ton of produce all the time that couldn't sell by the end of the day. And oftentimes farmers will donate to food banks or something like that, but they also will donate to the market manager. So I had a ton of food that I didn't know what to do with. So I would honestly, I would call farmers like late at night and be like, so tell me exactly how to can this can of beans. I have no idea what I'm doing. And yeah, so farmers totally taught me how to cook. And then, you know, calling my mom, I was a vegetarian for a long time and calling her and being like, I have no idea how to cook a chicken breast. <laughs> Please walk me through this. How do I know it's done? Awesome. Well, I mean, some of the perks of being the, the manager of a farmer's market, I guess. Yeah, I have a whole slew of people. But that's the thing, too, is that like you don't have to be a manager. Like Building that relationship with a farmer, if you are a shopper, and asking them, like, what's your favorite way to cook turnips? I think like they'll probably have an answer. You know, that's what they eat too. And I think like now I go to my market and I'm never afraid to ask. So Right. Alexa, your blog, The Best Bite of the Plum. Did you actually start the blog when you were going through your course that really changed your perspective or did you start that before? Oh, no, I started it much, much later. I started my blog last March. Right, right, right. And so that course I took was like, you know, a long time ago. (laughs) But, you know, I think like actually talking to you and being kind of vocal about eating disorders is something I haven't really done with it. And so I first, you know, started the blog as just this way to find my voice and to catalog things. But I think lately now that I, I feel like I've got something under my feet, I am ready to start being a little bit more vocal about the issues I care about. And that's, you know, food systems issues, but also eating disorders issues. So that's kind of the vision that I have going forward with it is to incorporate some more of those personal passions and just be a little more honest and transparent. You know, it's it's really scary to like, (laughs) to let yourself, you know, be truthful on the internet and where anyone can see. So I think, you know, this first year has just been about getting used to that idea and getting comfortable with that idea. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, telling your personal story also helps your audience, you know, connect closer with you too, because a lot of yeah. a lot of people are maybe suffering quietly or have, you know, some things that they're going through quietly. And, you know, yeah. by listening and, and sharing your story, you're definitely helping people. Even if you feel like you're not helping people, you probably are. Yeah, it's been really, you know, even amazing just to like, like the past couple of posts, I made two different soup dishes and I had like a lot of people tell me they made them. And that's kind of like some of the first times that's really happened to me. And it was kind of incredible to be like, wow, people are actually reading this and people might actually cook something that I share. It's just such a cool experience. Yeah. And I think any woman has probably had moments where she has not felt great about her body and has looked for a way to to feel better and to, and to find things to inspire her and to help her feel like a whole wonderful, worthy person. So yeah, I think that story is totally worth telling. Definitely. I think so too. Well, for a home cook like myself, who may not be super familiar with what's in season or what's local at the market when we're at the supermarket, yeah, are there some simple ways to know what is local and you know what is in season? Totally. First of all, the internet is like full of beautiful guides that can just like walk you through in your specific home, like in your specific place. Like you're in the Pacific Northwest, right? Right. So, you know, what's in season is going to be different for where I'm at in New York and for where you're at currently. And yeah, so I think honestly, also just like walking through a farmer's market and getting a sense of what's on tables is a great way to be like, okay, carrots and onions 
and some root vegetables. That's what's happening in February and January in New York City. And then thinking of creative ways to do something with that. And like, it's okay to not be perfect and cook seasonally every time and like throw in, you know, maybe you are just like desperate for the tomatoes because it's been a really long time. They're not going to taste as good from the farmer's market, but you know, it's okay to not be so strict about your values in terms of just like only buying local. But yeah, I think just like walking around and asking people and a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of chefs are cooking with seasonally appropriate foods now. And I think you can really see it in, in menus in a lot of restaurants, like what they're serving yeah. makes sense with the students. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, you know, maybe you can just go on the websites of restaurants, you know, download their PDF yeah. menus and see what they're serving and then sure. maybe just sort of mimic some of that or just take exactly. a little Yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Especially restaurants that like, you know, say that they feature locally sourced foods. Awesome. Alexa, here at the dinner special, we talk with food heroes about dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and maybe a little bit about the story behind the dish? So there's a dish that's on my blog and it's a Concord grape focaccia. And I've already talked a lot about tomatoes, but the thing that actually was like a spark for me at a farmer's market was the first time I had a locally grown grape. It was like I'm not even sure what variety of grape it was. It was maybe a Concord. But I took a bite of it in front of the farmer's stall and was literally blown away by the taste. I was like, oh my gosh, if this is a grape, what have I been eating my whole life? So grapes, you know, grape season is in like September, October, maybe late August. But it's my absolute favorite season. And so this dish is really special to me because it's like the epitome of things that inspired me. And the thought of like putting grapes in bread was also really wacky to me at first. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. But it's awesome. And traditionally in Italy, during grape harvest season in September, they, they make this focaccia. And the other wacky thing about it is they often leave the seeds in in the grapes. Oh. And so once it cooks and once it bakes, the seeds get a little softer and it's this this little crunch that at first can be like kind of shocking when you're a person who doesn't really like your seeds and your grapes. But then it's kind of addicting and awesome. So yeah, that's a dish that's pretty special to me, I'd say. Yeah, it's my favorite thing to make. I have like a lot of frozen grape focaccia in my freezer because <laughs> I made so much during grape season. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's say that you were making this Concord grape focaccia and you could share it with three famous people. Who would you invite over to share this with? You know, probably people that I would just like love to have dinner with and ask questions. So like Michael Pollan, someone who could teach me so much. You know, I'll also say my mom because my mom always teaches me so much about food and I love spending dinner with her. So my mom would come to dinner. It's my mom and Michael and somebody I don't know, but probably someone who is from Italy and has made this dish traditionally, who could just like teach me all the things that I might not be doing that are totally right. I should be doing with great focaccia. Great. Yeah. So Michael, he'll, he'll give us some like big picture thinking on what's happening in the food system. My mom and I will hang out and have some fun. And then this like awesome Italian cook will just like teach us the right way to make this. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's say that you guys were just stuffed with this grape focaccia. Yeah. And you guys were just hanging out on the couch and you guys were going to put in a movie. What movie would you watch with your Concord grape focaccia? Well, probably something about food, huh? Which, you know, is interesting. I don't really I don't really watch a lot of movies about food, but my husband is a filmmaker and is really into movies, so I'd probably ask him for advice. And I'd probably just like pick something that I love watching. Okay, I'm going to say Fargo because it's one of my favorite movies, but it's not exactly light, but it's, it's light and funny. 
Okay, perfect. Alexa, for someone who's looking for a bit of a cooking challenge, is there a recipe on your blog that you can recommend where they can try and learn something new and end up with a delicious dish? Yeah, totally. You know, I think something that I just posted recently, which is a Parmesan broth, is something that feels kind of difficult because of the time, but it's actually really easy. Like, I don't actually think I have very many complicated dishes on my blog, because that's not really, I don't really want to put complicated dishes on my blog. I want them to be simple. But I think a Parmesan broth sounds challenging because it takes so long. Like it takes like hours that you just like sit and wait. But yeah, so much of that time is just waiting. So I think, yeah, I would say a Parmesan broth. And I think people would enjoy the the experience and the challenge because they can shape it any way they want. Like I put certain, you know, herbs and onions and garlic in there. But the thing about broth is that it can be shaped. It's a template, you know, it's a template. You can make it however you want. Perfect. And the Parmesan rinds, like I never thought you could put Parmesan rinds in broth. But then I discovered that I think from a Bon Appetit article and Smitten Kitchen had done it before. And I was like, oh my God, that's freaking genius. But yeah, so that's that's the exciting part to it. I've never personally heard of Parmesan broth, so I'm definitely going to have to check this out. Like, do you add it to noodles or do you add it to like just basically whatever you want? Mm -hmm, Totally. So the thing is, save your Parmesan rinds and like throw them in the freezer. If you're a person who buys like big chunks of Parmesan, just like slice off the rinds when you're done with the cheese, put them in your baggie in your freezer and save them for your broth because it makes it so rich and flavorful. But you can also buy Parmesan rinds. My local grocery store has it and I think you can buy them from Whole Foods, um, any place with like a big cheese shop, I would think. But yeah, it just, it adds this like really big warm flavor. And then you could, you could pair it with like whatever kind of soup you'd like to make that requires a broth or, you know, just save it like you would use to make, you know, risotto or something or rice that you would use some kind of vegetable broth for. Awesome. I've just learned something new that sounds totally amazing. (laughs) Yeah, really. It's really easy. It just takes a long time. Alexa, I call the next part of the dinner special podcast the pressure cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? Totally. Okay, well, I'm going to fail this question because I don't really watch any, but I've been hearing amazing things about the Netflix series called Chef. I think that's what it's called. So that's on my list to watch. So I'll report back. Perfect. Number two, what are some food blogs or food websites we have to know about? I think the one food blog that has really inspired me in a lot of ways is the blog Happy Yolks. I've been following her for a really long time. I don't know if she's actually really blogging much anymore, but she just, her writing is so beautiful and honest and vulnerable. And, you know, a lot of blogs that I go to, I I go to also for the writing, not just for the, the recipes. And I think she just does such a beautiful job of pairing those. I also follow Brooklyn Supper. I love her recipes because they're simple, they're seasonal. And she's also, she's based in Appalachia, I think in Virginia. And I've spent a lot of time in Appalachia. And I know that there are a lot of people who are eager and hungry for really simple seasonal recipes with food that's been grown there for a long time. And I'll also mention my friend Catherine's blog called Cook With What You Have. She's based in Portland, Oregon. She is just the epitome. The the name is perfect. She is the epitome of everything I want to be in a cook, which is a person who, who saves the scraps and the little bits and pieces and makes something really cool and beautiful out of them. And she also has a business where she teaches these awesome cooking classes about just that. Um, yeah, that's, those are some of my favorite blogs, but among so many others. Perfect. Number three, who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, or Snapchat that make you happy? 
Totally. I mean, I follow so many food bloggers on Instagram. That's probably like the main social media mode that I use. I love Baker's Hands. She is this like incredible baker who's also this incredible artist. And she makes like this flower art on top of her loaves of bread. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. You know, Dolly and Oatmeal, Marbell, There She Cooks, Local Haven, The Roaming Kitchen, so so many others, so many people that are doing just amazing things with food that are constantly inspiring me. Yeah, totally. Tons of inspiration out there. Yeah, and a lot of people that you've interviewed, I was looking through your list and was like, oh my gosh, I follow so many of these guys. They're awesome. Awesome, awesome. Number four, what is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? So I live in New York City and I have a very small kitchen. So I've tried to be very intentional with the kinds of like tools that I keep in my kitchen. So I'm going to go with treasured, the most treasured item. Um, and it's probably my grandmother's silver. She gave it to my husband and I as a gift for our wedding. And it's a really lovely story about how she got this silver. So my grandmother is from rural Eastern Kentucky in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. And she moved to Lexington to the, to the big city. And ended up working at the Capitol building in Frankfort, Kentucky. She was the secretary in the building. And she, you know, she had made it. She had really left her rural roots for the city. And one of the things she bought with her first paycheck was this beautiful set of silverware that she went home and gave to her mother. And so she gave that to me for my wedding. And it's my most prized possession that I own. It's amazing. Yeah. So I use it in all of my posts on on my blog too. That's incredible. Yeah. Number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love okay there are a lot of things i feel like i'm constantly teaching myself to like new foods that i didn't like before but the thing that i will stand out that i really love now is pickles like i despised pickles i hated pickles i was like the person who you know you order a sandwich at a restaurant and the pickle touched your sandwich and you're like oh my god i can't eat that part of the sandwich but then somehow i just started really loving pickles and started making a lot of pickles myself probably prompted by a lot of those farmers at that market who were like this is what you have to do to save this produce (laughs) but yeah now i'm totally obsessed with pickles Uh, number six what are a few cookbooks that make your life better you know, I think, you know, the Abilangi cookbooks, Plenty More and Jerusalem, they are so creative and difficult in some ways. So those really push me because I think a lot of the cooking I generally do for myself on a daily basis is something that's just really simple. So cooking something out of all of those cookbooks always feels like a challenge to me and an accomplishment once I've made it. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say those cookbooks are some of my favorites. And I'll also mention The Joy of Cooking, which my mother made pancakes from almost every weekend growing up. And so The Joy of Cooking has a special place in my heart. (laughs) Awesome. And finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? So my husband is totally like the music guy in our relationship. So I'm often like over in the cooking and then you're over in the kitchen and he's like at the computer at our record player putting some tunes on. So I let him DJ most of the time. But I'm also really obsessed with Robin and with Sia. So like things that make me want to dance and that I know all the words to make me super excited. So I to those. Perfect. Well, congratulations, Alexa. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. <laughs> Thanks. Alexa, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. Now, you're on social media. What's the best way for us to keep posted with what you're up to? So I probably post most to Instagram, and it's just my name. It's Alexa Arnold. And then I'm on Facebook, too, but use that a little less frequently. So yeah, I would say Instagram and and just on my blog are probably the best ways to reach me. Great. And of course, the blog is thebestbiteoftheplum.com. Yep, that's right. 
great. It was such a pleasure chatting with you today, Alexa. I hope you had a good time. I did. Yeah, so much fun to chat with you, Gabriel. I'm totally honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Head on over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking.